Have you ever excused your behavior with the words, no one's perfect? <laughs> well, if you have, listen again to the words of Jesus. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said it, but is it possible? Is it possible? Well, if by perfect, Jesus means moral perfection, sinless, no, we can't. You know, Paul made it very clear in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, of course, his all excludes the sinless Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But the rest of us have sinned. And if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what the Apostle John said in 1 John 1.8. So no, we cannot be morally perfect. But the word also means to be complete. To be whole, to be mature, and in that sense, we can be perfect. In fact, that is what Jesus expects of a kingdom man and a kingdom woman. He expects us to become mature citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Citizens who reflect the kingdom attitudes. The be attitudes. He expects our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because he expects us to be changed from the inside out. He expects us to go beyond the letter of the law. We've already seen what that means with regard to murder and adultery. The law said you shall not commit murder, but Jesus said that's not enough. I say to you, control your anger. Reconcile your brother. Befriend your opponent. The law said you shall not commit adultery, but Jesus said acknowledge an adulterous heart. Address an adulterous life and avoid an adulterous divorce. Well, he concludes this section of the Sermon on the Mount with three more, but I say. He says, if we are to be complete, if we are to be mature, we must be perfect in honesty, in charity, and in love. We begin by acknowledging that he insists that we must be perfect in honesty. We're in Matthew chapter 5, ready for 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, 
You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is of evil. The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The third commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, those two commandments are brought together in Leviticus 19.12. And you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The intent was to ensure honesty. God expects his people to be honest with him and with others. And to use his name to affirm something that wasn't true was to profane his name, to use it in vain. That was the primary focus of the third commandment, by the way. You know, using God's name as an expletive or to curse someone or in a frivolous manner is no doubt using it in vain as well. And it should be offensive to all who hold it sacred. But the primary intent of the commandment is to assure that God's name is not used in a way that impinges his character. Now, the Jews recognize that. And no Jew would use the name of God in an oath unless they had every intention of keeping it. However, some had devised a way to make oaths sound binding, but in their eyes were not binding at all. They had found ways to deceive through the use of vows with loopholes, of making promises while keeping their fingers crossed behind their backs. And if you could convince someone of your honesty by swearing on heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own head, you could renege on your promise because you hadn't sworn by the name of God. Jesus makes it clear that's ridiculous. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And your head, even the hairs of your head, belong to him. So any oath at all reflects on God and brings him into the transaction. Besides, a citizen of the kingdom should never have to make an oath anyway. You know, we make oaths to convince someone that we're going to tell the truth this time. That we've been known to lie in the past, but now they can believe what we're going to say because we've sworn to tell the truth this time. Jesus said a simple yes or no. 
is all that should ever be required of a kingdom man. There should be no doubt about your honesty. You shouldn't have to convince someone that you're finally going to tell the truth. Now, does this mean it's wrong to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law? Well, Jehovah's Witnesses and Quakers would say yes. And they refuse to do so. I, I don't think we need to go that far. You know, Jesus testified under oath when being tried by the high priest. And Paul called upon God to witness his honesty when writing to both the Corinthians and the Galatians. The point Jesus was making is that oaths should never be necessary to assure that we are telling the truth. Our yes should always be yes, and our no, no. We should be completely honest. Now, even if lying in certain circumstances is socially acceptable, it's not acceptable for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We cannot renege on our word by saying, I was only kidding. We can't look for loopholes in a contract when the intent of the contract was obvious. We can't say one thing and mean something else. We can't claim that something is true to us, even if it isn't true to someone else. That's very contemporary in our culture. We're to be perfect in honesty. And we're to be perfect in charity. Let's read on. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, in trying to come up with a word to describe all of these directives, the only thing I could come up with was charity. Jesus is illustrating just how charitable a kingdom man must be in his dealings with those in the world. And this is radical charity. It goes much further than anyone would expect. You know, the law of tit for tat, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, sounds harsh and uncharitable to us. But actually, when it was given, it was not instruction on how to get even, so much as a limit on getting even, a limit on retribution. You know, human nature seldom wants to just get even. We want the upper hand. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you worse. That's how feuds develop. That's how wars escalate. Well, the law put a lid on getting even. It kept it even. If you poked out my eye, I could not poke out 
both of your eyes. I could only poke out one of them. <laughs> if you knocked out my tooth, I couldn't break your jaw. I could only knock out one tooth. Now, that's kind of hard to do, so I'm told. How can you be sure only one tooth comes out? Well, a monetary equivalent became the best way to address that. And that's how the score was settled. And this was generally done in a court of law before a judge. And so the law was given primarily to direct judges in handing down equitable decisions, not really to tell individuals how to settle a score. An impartial judge would make sure that things were kept even. That was the Old Testament way, and that was an improvement over human nature. Okay? But Jesus notches it up. He says a kingdom man shouldn't worry about getting even. He shouldn't worry about getting what's due him. Our primary concern should be on becoming the light of the world and letting our light shine in such a way that men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And we're not going to impress the world by simply being just and fair. The only way we're going to impress the world is by giving it what it doesn't deserve. Isn't that how God impressed us? Isn't that the way he convinced us that he loves us? Isn't that what made us want to enter into a relationship with him? Well, if our objective in life is to draw people into the kingdom and to bring them into a relationship with God and his people, we're going to have to do for them what he did for us. We're going to have to go beyond justice and fairness to mercy grace. We're going to have to overwhelm them with undeserved forgiveness, unexpected kindness, and magnanimous charity. Jesus illustrated that with several examples. He began by saying, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this does not mean you can never defend yourself if someone is throwing blows at you. It's not instructing you to say, go ahead, hit me again. It's not what it's saying. The picture is primarily one of insults, not physical violence. You know, in order to slap someone on the right cheek, if you're right-handed, how are you going to do it? Jeff, if I were to slap you on the right cheek, how would I get to it? I'd have to go this way, wouldn't I? It'd be a backhand. Now, what's the point of a backhand? Is it to hurt you or to insult you? Come on, say insult. Good, thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's what he's talking about here. You just happen to be there. Sorry. No, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. And I have no idea where I am in my sermon right now. <laughs> and you don't either, right? 
backhand. There it is. Okay. Jesus is saying, don't get even. When someone insults you, don't insult them in return. Don't even resist them. Let them say whatever it is they have to say. Your lack of response will accomplish much more than anything you could say in return. Then he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now, we don't get the full impact of that statement until we realize that most people in Jesus' day only had one coat or cloak. They generally had several shirts or tunics that they wore next to their body, but seldom had more than one coat or cloak. In fact, the law stipulated that if you took a man's cloak as a pledge for the the day, you had to return it to him before sundown because he would need it to keep himself warm. Jesus is saying, even though... No man has the legal right to take your coat and keep it. Give it to him. It'll convince him that your relationship with him is more important than your personal comfort. Then he said, if a Roman soldier impresses you into service, which he had the right to do, and he forces you to carry his pack for a mile, which the law said he could, Don't get to the end of the mile and throw down the pack and stomp away. Say, oh, I'll carry another mile. And then smile at him. What's that going to do to the soldier? Hopefully it will lead him to say, what's with you? And then you can tell him about the one who went the extra mile for you. Hmm. And then he says... Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, i got to admit, this one hit me this morning as I was reading over my sermon again. Because quite frankly, I get very tired of those little cardboard signs that are held at the intersection. Especially, you know, when you see playing tag with each other, who's going to stand in the corner at the right time. And at first I'm going, oh, man. I don't know. Are we supposed to give to them, or are we supporting a lifestyle that is very inappropriate? How do we balance that out with, if a man won't work, don't let him eat? You know, I don't know. And I thought, oh. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next time I see those little cardboard signs. Chances are I won't give to them. Maybe I should. I don't know. I also don't know. But if someone has a legitimate need and you have the ability to meet that need, Jesus says, meet it. Okay? Don't withhold from someone if you can do something to help meet a legitimate need. And try not to be too calculating. going to make an error, I guess we need to make it on the side of being giving. I don't like this sermon. Okay, let's go on. 
All right, all right, where am I here? Oh, yes. Again, our goal is to be charitable with others as our Heavenly Father was with us. We want to be perfect in charity. We want to be perfect in love. 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament do we read, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Jews of Jesus' day must have added the second half of that phrase that they heard over and over again. You know, the law said, love your neighbor, and they must have assumed that anyone who's not your neighbor could be hated. Well, Jesus said, no. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I'm sure that the prayer he would have us pray is more like Job's than David's in this regard. You know, David prayed for his enemies, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they'd be no more. Job said, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? No, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. When Jesus says, pray for our enemies, he's expecting us to pray positively for them, okay? not negatively. Praying for good things to happen to them. Praying that they might come to know the joy of the Lord. Praying in love for them, not hatred. Why? Because that's the way our Heavenly Father treats everyone. He doesn't discriminate in His love. He sends the sun and the rain on the evil and the good alike. Now, it's true He may withhold rain to bring someone to repentance. And we've seen Him do that several times in the Old Testament. And he might send rain, a lot of rain, to bring judgment on an unrepentant world. And we saw him do that, too. But as a general rule, he blesses everyone. You know, seldom do we see you know, the Hunley fields get rain and the neighbor's fields get none. It's not really a patchwork of blessing. God sends the rain. He sends the sun. 
That's the way we're to love. He blesses everyone. We are to be a blessing to others. He wants us to express love the same way he expresses love, even to those who are hard to love. If we are his sons, we're to be like him in that regard. We aren't to discriminate in love. If we do, he says, you're no better than sinners and unbelievers. Because they love those who love them. We're called upon to be perfect in love, to love even those who sin against us. That's what God did for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kind of love we're to have for others, all others, if we're to be perfect in love, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, these demands may seem extreme. They make me uncomfortable. I hope they make you uncomfortable. hope they challenge you as they challenge me. But you know, Jesus doesn't expect any more from us than he was willing to give to us. He never deceives us. He never retaliates against us. He's always willing to do more for us than we expect or deserve. And he doesn't stop loving us when we sin against Him. If we are to be members of His kingdom, that's the way we must be as well. Whatever He was willing to give up for us, we must be willing to give up for others. So what will it cost me? Follow the Lord, everything, all that I own, all that I am, all that I love. That's the price he paid for us. And that's the price we must pay.